Well, first of all, thank you very much all for coming to this lunchtime lecture. I have to admit that I expected maybe 10, 15 people, so I'm very impressed that you're all turning up in lunchtime on a Tuesday. Um, I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to talk about William Hewson and his discoveries on the red blood cells. But first, I have to make a correction that's very important to me, and is I've been very kindly introduced as a historian and an archaeologist. I have to say I'm only an archaeologist, I'm not a historian. But I have a great interest in the historical period in London particularly. <coughs> so I came into this specific research almost by coincidence. In 1999, I was doing my master's degree, and I was looking for a dissertation topic. And the previous year, Professor Simon Hilson at the Institute of Archaeology at UCL had carried out an excavation of what is today known as Benjamin Franklin House. Now, I haven't been working on this subject since 1999. Trust me, I've done something in between. But, so I returned again in 2008 to carry out further research on the topic, which has kindly been funded by the Wellcome Trust History of Medicine. Now, the structure of my talk today, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the excavation, although it's not strictly the topic of today. Then I'll talk to you a little bit about um, William Hewson as a scientist and anatomist. And then we're just going to look into a little bit about the state of microscopy in the 18th century. And then I'd like to talk about a specific paper wherein Hewson presents his thoughts on the morphology of red blood cells and how a microscope aided his discoveries in this. Now this here is a very detailed map by Richard Horwood, which dates to 1793, so it actually dates later than um, when William Hewson was there. Hungerford Market, as you can see up there, is actually at Charing Cross Station today. And um, the street along there, as you can see, is Craven Street. And this is where the house of Benjamin Franklin stands. It's number 36 Craven Street, and that's where the picture of William Hewson is. So, so that one there. And this was um, getting renovated in the late um, 1990s. The house in question today is known as number 36 Craven Street, but back in the 1770s, the house was numbered number 27 Craven Street. That's because you have an addition of some extra houses along here in the late 1700s so they'd had to change the numbering. Um, the remains of Hewson's anatomy school were discovered when um, they were renovating the building, and the workmen were digging up the basement of the premises, and they found a large number, over 3,000 dissected human and animal skeletal remains, as well as material remains such as glass and pot and metal. And all these remains were very consistent with the refuse of a medical establishment. The building in question is not actually owned by, wasn't actually owned by Benjamin Franklin, but he was the lodger there for a period of 15 years, and it's apparently the only surviving residence in London. Sorry, I'm a bit out of breath, so you have to bear with it. Um, the house was owned, or leased, by a lady called Margaret Stevenson, and she was the landlady of Benjamin Franklin, but even more importantly, in this context, she had a daughter called Mary Stevenson. Now, William Hunter, William Hunter, William Hewson actually fell in love with Mary, and then they married in 1770. And at this time, Hewson had been the partner of William Hunter for almost eight years. When Hunter and Hewson's partnership actually dissolved, Hewson opened his own anatomy school in Craven Street, and he moved in there with his wife, while Margaret Stevenson and Benjamin Franklin, they moved up to number one Craven Street. So that's the picture where you can see Benjamin Franklin up there. That's not actually existing anymore. I think it's the modern flats or something. I should also quickly add here, there's a third person on this slide, who is um, John Leakey. 
And this is the chap here. Um, and he was a man midwife, and he ran his own courses right next door to Houston on midwifery, exactly at the same time as Houston was there. Unfortunately, we don't have any historical documentation that links Leakey and Houston with one another, though it's hard to imagine that they didn't have some form of contact. Now, this is not actually Craven Street Anatomy School. It's a caricature of William Hunter's school in Great Windmill Street. But the image does, however, include both Houston and Hunter. And despite it being a caricature, I think it's probably not that far off from what a dissection room would have looked like in the 18th century. And it's pretty um, gory and scary, I think, but it's probably not far off. These dissection rooms were only open in the colder half of the year, because in the summer month, you can imagine that the, the bodies would have putrefied very quickly and they simply wouldn't have time to um, dissect them. And as you can see here, this one here is uh, William Houston who's um, taking the eye out or something of this poor chap. And up there you can see William Hunter himself, he's sort of keeping an eye on everybody. Anyways, just to give you an idea of what a dissection room and a research situation, or it's sort of research situation whose shoes might have been in, um, in the time of the 18th century. Now let's move on to the excavation a little bit. As I mentioned, the excavation was carried out in 1998 by Professor Simon Hilson and his colleagues from UCL. Only a very small area of the basement was excavated due to the restrictions of time and finances. So it was only like a one cubic meter pit that was dug. So very, really, really quite small. But you have to imagine that even though it was so small, there was over 3,000 skeletal elements found in that pit. This image shows a profile, or section as we call it, of the excavation. And as you can see, there are several distinct layers interspersed with lime. And this lime would have been thrown into the pit to help dull the smell of the putrefying flesh in there. Having studied these layers, I believe that they represent a relatively short time span, maybe even just a few days, but maximum a few weeks. I should perhaps point out that despite the, exca the excavation being in the current basement of Benjamin Franklin House, back in Houston's days, this was actually the backyard of the building. Now here's the second image of the excavation, but this time we see a layer of the excavation. And each layer was completely densely packed with remains. Some of the remains is what we call partially articulated. That means that more than one bone excavated together in the, in the correct anatomical position. Such as can be seen with the ribs up in that corner. And we would know that these had actually been fleshed at the time they'd been thrown into the pit. Other bones were might not more likely to have been skeletonized at the time of burial. And these were uncovered in a disarticulated state, such as the skull elements that you can see here. Many of the skull elements like this showed evidence of multiple trepanning from, from practicing using the trepan, an instrument which was designed to perforate the skull to relieve pressure on the brain and to remove fragments of bone after injury. At the bottom of a picture here, you can see a further cluster of bones. These are not actually human, but they're turtle bones, which we know Hewson, he did a lot of work on, turtle bone, of, on turtles themselves. All the layers were excavated and recorded separately, and the bones were brought to UCL for further analysis. Now, here are some examples of what kinds of modifications that we um, analyze on the bones. And they actually able them to tell us a little bit about the techniques and how they handled the bones and how they used them at the time. For instance, it's possible to distinguish a fresh break or a break that would have occurred during um, 
the time in the dissection room from a break that would have occurred post-mortem. And you can see up there, you have a nice undulating surface, whereas the post-mortem breaks would have the soil and would have damaged, um, caused, uh, been damaged in the soil. It's quite ragged. It's also, um, many of the bones showed saw marks where we can gauge not only the size of the saw, but also the direction of the cuts, which give us a very good idea of how these um, bodies were actually dismembered. Many of the bones were also stained red from residues, either thrown into the pit, but some of them we could actually clearly follow the process of injection. For instance, a young child had red stains following the meningeal vessels inside the skull. Interestingly, there was also quite a lot of evidence of animal activity in form of gnawing and puncture marks. Um, and this was both on the human and the animal bones, suggesting that the bones had been left exposed for animals to feast on once the students had finished with them. Now this is a very simple pie chart just to show you the age profile of the human remains that um, we found in the pit. The minimum number that would have been in the pit would be from 24 uh, different individuals. This may not sound like a large amount, but you have to again think of the size of the excavation. So there's actually no mean feat to fit in 24 individuals into a small pit like that. <coughs> Even though, of course, there were not um, all of them complete. As you can see, there were more children than there were adults, with a remarkably high portion of stillborn and newborn. This is, of course, interesting, as the school was situated right next to John Leakey's school, whom we know was a man midwife. We have to remember that during this period, legal bodies were very in very short supply, supply, and it is well known that body snatching and underhand dealing was the only method of procuring bodies for anatomical study. But this, unfortunately, is a completely different story than we're dealing with today. A very interesting one, but I fear I have to move on from that subject. Um, this is just to show you as well about the animals a little bit. We found quite a lot of different species, which is consistent with Houston's research. So you had both uh, you had birds, dogs, cats, rabbits, cow, horse, those turtle as well as we know. And but interestingly, they weren't cut the same way as the as, as the humans were, and therefore we know that they were not substitute for the humans if they were in short supply. We know that they've been used differently. And um, from Hewson's actual um, publications himself, we know that he did an awful lot of vivisections. So unfortunately, a lot of these animals were probably victims of vivisections. Okay, well, this is enough about the excavation. And it was simply to give you an idea of why I, as an archaeologist, have become involved in what is essentially a historical subject matter. I'll now introduce you to Hewson, the man, to give you an idea of what kind of person he was before we move on to his research on the blood using the microscope. Hewson was born in 1739 in Hexham in Northumberland. Sorry. He was the son of an apothecary, and he was very encouraged to go down the medical route, most likely to follow in his father's footsteps. He trained under Dr. Richard Lambert in Newcastle from 1753. At that time, he had only been 14 years old. And he actually trained with him until he was about 20. And at the age of 20, he travelled to London to attend William Hunter's courses in Covent Garden to gain experience in practical anatomy. He also attended lessons at Guy and St Thomas's Hospital. Now, this was a very, very traditional method of training at the time, so there's nothing surprising about this. This was the route that most people went down. 
He had lived with John Hunter himself, who was running the practical classes at William Hunter's school at the time. But in 1761, when John Hunter left to join the war, I think this was the Seven Year War, Hewson was offered the position as long as he did a season with Alexander Monroe Secundus up in Edinburgh. Now, Edinburgh at the time was the hub of medical education. So it's not surprising that William had said to him, well, you have to do a course out there before you can actually become my partner. He remained uh, the partner of Hunter for about 10 years. And I think it's just an interesting point because we know that he earned about £270 a year. If he'd been a hospital lecturer, he could have earned upwards of £1,000 a year. And William Hunter himself actually earned upwards of £10,000 a year at the time. So we know that Hewson wasn't getting rich from his experiences with Hunter, but it wasn't a mean pay either, because had he been his assistant, it would only have been about £50. Now, in 1772, his partnership with William Hunter ended due to a number of disputes, and he decided to open his own anatomy school in Craven Street. Interestingly, however, Hewson never actually formally qualified as a surgeon. He never sat the exam. So he remained what we call a reader of anatomy. And this actually left him with very little scope for extra income. So he only had his um, teaching to go by. There's no doubt, however, that Hewson benefited greatly from being Hunter's partner, and he met many prominent figures in the scientific community. Unfortunately, Hewson died at the age of 36 due to septicemia when he cut himself during a dissection. He's buried at St. Martin's in the field, down by Charing Cross Station. We do not know if he, no he actually donated his body to anatomical research, as his grave has never been found. But there's no historical evidence that he did. He left behind two sons and a daughter that he never met. Mary, his wife, wrote that he did not leave a great deal of money, and on his deathbed, he expressed deep concerns to the welfare of his family. So we know that he wasn't a man of any great means when it was financial. His brother-in-law and colleague, Magnus Falconer, took over the day-to-day -day running of the school. But unfortunately, he also died at a very young age of 26 from tuberculosis in 1778. Now, Hewson's experiences and history is testament to how fiercely competitive the scientific world was in the 18th century. He, like the Hunter brothers, had a very keen interest not only in human anatomy, but he also had a keen uh, interest in anatomy of all other species. There's little doubt when studying Hewson's papers that he had a remarkable ability to build on his results and logically approach relatively new scientific methods, such as the use of the microscope. He has not surprisingly been awarded the title Father of Haematology by his successors, concentrating much of his research on a circulatory system, such as the lymphatics and the blood. He conducted investigation into the morphology of red blood cells and the blood's ability to coagulate, and discoveries, uh, and discoveries what we today know as a fibrinogen. This is the clotting element in the blood. He also investigated the lymphatic system's absorbency and the function of the thymus and the spleen in their role of fighting infections and proved their existence in birds, fish and amphibians. The latter actually earned him the very prestigious Copley Medal, which was awarded by Ballard, and he was only 30 years at the time. This medal was awarded to people who had contributed the most to advancement of science and useful knowledge. So this is quite a big medal to achieve at that age.
1770, he became Fellow of the Royal Society, and he was then allowed, uh, he was then allowed to um, present his own papers, whereas before, William Hunter had presented the papers for him. He was recommended, amongst other people, by John Pringle, William Hunter, and Benjamin Franklin himself. And this was only three years after William and John Hunter themselves actually became members of the, of the Royal Society. Um, it provided Hewson with a prestigious forum in which he could discuss and present his research results. Now, however, it sounds like he just had um, the bee's knees of a career, but it wasn't all um, plain sailing.